Okay, let's all open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 17. And we are going to finish out the chapter today. We're going to be talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, living in light of Christ's return. So let's go ahead and pick up the section. Luke chapter 17. And we'll begin reading in verse 20. Before we do that, let's just ask God to help us. Father in heaven, we do pray for your help. Help us to understand, Lord, what you've put here in your word. Help us to apply it in our lives. Give us wisdom, Lord, on how we should live knowing that our Lord and Savior Jesus is going to return. We pray that in his holy name. Amen. Luke 17, 20. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here he is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, and the other will be left." There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. I don't think there is any doctrine in Scripture that is more debated, more controversial, and more confusing than the doctrine of the last days of Jesus Christ. We call that eschatology. The word eschatology comes from two Greek words, logos, ology, and eschatos, meaning last things. So this is the study of last things. Sometimes we call this Bible prophecy. Sometimes we call it the last days, the end times. But we're talking about the events at the very end of human history. 
And the church has never been in full agreement over what those things mean and how they're actually going to end up. The church is in agreement that Jesus is coming back. The church is in agreement that mankind is going to be raised from the dead. The church is in agreement that those who are saved will be caught up to meet him in the air. The church is in agreement that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the big pillars we all agree on, but there's so much disagreement amongst the lesser things, such as the millennium. There's three, actually four major views. Historic premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And the word millennium means a thousand years. So this has to do with when the thousand years of Revelation 20 is going to take place. And if you're not familiar with these terms, don't worry about it. But, but there's all kinds of disagreements, and all those four positions we would call orthodox. They've all existed throughout the history of the church, and we, we grant to each other the right to come to those positions. We don't say you're, um, you're her heretic if you believe one view of the millennium or the other. We recognize that good Christians have embraced all four different views. There's also been differences about the timing of the rapture, the catching up of the saints. Some believe it's going to happen seven years before Jesus comes back. Some believe it's going to happen three and a half years before Jesus comes back. And some believe it's going to happen when Jesus comes back. When you take a look at, at Israel in Bible prophecy, and you know, what role does Israel play? There's all kinds of views on that. Some think that all Israel is literally, all ethnic Israel is going to be saved and converted. Others say, no, it, that's not going to happen at all. There's differences of way people in, interpret Romans chapter 11 that deals with that subject. When you go to the book of Revelation, there are four major views of the book of Revelation. The historist view, the idealist view, the preterist view, and the futurist view. And you've had good men on all sides of that. And within all those major views of the book of Revelation, you've got all kinds of variances of different ways people see it within that major camp. So do you see what I'm saying? This is very confusing, very puzzling, lots of controversy. So my question is, why did God put information in the Bible that we can't seem to agree on? Was it just to spill lots more ink and write thousands and thousands of books about all the views that people have about these subjects? Was it just so that we would debate and argue with each other? <laughs> Is there any practical implications of Christ's return? That's what I want to talk to you about today. There are definitely some very practical implications of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. In fact, when you read Second Peter, Peter has something to say about that. It's in 2 Peter chapter 3, and he speaks about the return of Christ. And then in 2 Peter 3.10, he says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So Peter believed that when we considered the second coming of Jesus Christ, it ought to make us holy and it ought to make us godly. And if it's not doing that, something's wrong with the way you're looking at the second coming of Christ. 
if, if you are one of those guys that loves Bible prophecy and you've got charts all over your house and you're talking about the seals and the judgments and the trumpets and you just want to know what every detail means, but you're not living a holy life, you missed everything. You missed the whole purpose of why Jesus Christ in His Word has revealed that He's coming back. He wants it to motivate you to holiness and godliness. Now, we're going to be looking at four exhortations from Luke 17 that flow out of Jesus' teaching on His second coming. But before we can do that, we need to take a look at verse 20 and 21, because it's sort of a lead-in to His teaching on His return. Verse 20, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, He answered them, and He said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The general opinion amongst the Jewish people of that day was that the kingdom of God was going to be ushered in by this powerful Messiah who would rise up, and he would destroy all the enemies of Israel, and he would come in with great pomp and splendor and fanfare, and there would be thrones and palaces and armies, and horses, and chariots, and might, and power. But when the Pharisees looked around at Jesus, who kept telling them, repent, because the kingdom of God's at hand. They said, where's the kingdom? You're, you keep saying it's at hand, but here you're a carpenter. You've got this ragtag bunch of tax collectors, and fishermen, and harlots. We don't see any kingdom. Where are the thrones? Where are the palaces? Where are the armies? We don't see any of that stuff. And so Jesus says, look, the kingdom is not coming with these signs, outward signs to be observed. Don't, look, don't be looking for thrones and palaces and armies and fanfare and splendor and pomp and ceremony. That's, you won't see the kingdom there because the kingdom that's coming is not an earthly, physical, military kingdom. It's a spiritual, invisible kingdom. And he says... Nor will you be able to say it's over here or it's over there. Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, I have heard all kinds of people use the King James Version of this verse, which says the kingdom of God is within you. And they have come up with the craziest and wackiest ideas. Have you heard this? They'll say the kingdom of God is within every person. Jesus said so. It's inside of you. Now, do you know what the problem with that view is? Jesus, who's Jesus talking to when he says it's in your midst or it's within you? He's talking to Pharisees. Were the Pharisees believers? No, they're unbelievers. Is Jesus saying that the kingdom of God is inside of all those unbelieving Pharisees? No, it can't mean that. <laughs> the Bible never says that the kingdom is in anybody. It says that people are in the kingdom. So it's a better translation. The kingdom of God is among you or the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, how would that change things? How, would, how is the kingdom of God in their midst? Jesus is there. The king is in their midst. And wherever the king is, the kingdom is. So yeah, Jesus was walking in their midst. He was talking to these unbelievers. So of course the kingdom was right there among them, in their midst. So Jesus, when he contemplates his first coming, 
was to inaugurate or to establish the kingdom, his mind naturally goes to the, his second coming when he's going to return to consummate that kingdom, to bring it to a climax. And so that's why he starts to talk not to the Pharisees, but to his disciples, and he wants to instruct them about the consummation of his kingdom. When he comes back and when he returns, what's going to be taking place? And so let's take a look at four practical exhortations from this text. And they're negative. They all start with don't be, dot, dot, dot. First one is don't be deceived by false Christs. Verse 22 says, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. In other words, Jesus will not be here present on the earth. You're going to miss him. You're going to want to be with him. You're going to long for him to be with you again. But he's not going to be here. Then they're going to say to you, Look there. Look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. Do you hear Jesus? When you hear someone say, Look over here. Look over there. He says, Don't run after those people. Don't go where they tell you to go. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, there's a parallel passage to this one, and I want you to go with me over to Matthew 24, because it's going to shed some light on what Jesus is teaching in Luke 17. So take a look at Matthew 24, verse 23. Matthew gives us a little bit of more information that we have in Luke. Matthew 24, 23. Jesus says, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, that's new information, or there he is, do not believe him. Now over in Luke, he says, Don't go after them. Here he says, Don't believe them. When they tell you, Here's the Christ. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Or, Behold, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying people are going to tell you that they are the Christ and that you should come and follow them. People are going to be saying, go over there. I, we found the Christ. He's over there. Oh no, someone else is saying he's over here. Go follow this fellow. He's the Christ. And Jesus says, don't follow those guys. Don't believe them. Because when Jesus comes back, it's going to be obvious the entire world because his coming is going to be like the lightning that's going to flash across the sky. Now, you can't miss the lightning, can you? Nobody has to tell you to go follow the lightning. <laughs> Jesus is not going to reappear until he comes back the second time, and when he does, there's going to be no confusion over who he is. Now, here's the exhortation. Do not be deceived by false Christs. We have had dozens and dozens of people who have purported to be the Christ since Jesus exited this world 2,000 years ago. Many scores of them. I want to give you just a short list of them. 
There was a woman by the name of Anne Lee in the 1700s. Anyone heard of Anne Lee? She was the leader of the Shakers. Have you ever heard of the Shakers? This was a sect that started over in England. They came to the New World, where the colonists were. Uh, Anne Lee taught that if you wanted to go to heaven, you needed to become celibate. If you were married, you needed to stop having sexual relations. Uh, so celibacy was the big thing. Also, they, she believed that you could attain to perfect holiness in this life. Anne Lee herself believed that she was the embodiment of all of God's perfections and that she was the female counterpart of Jesus Christ. She said that the male counterpart of the Christ came in the first century, that was Jesus, but the female counterpart is going to come at his second coming, and that's going to be Anne Lee, and she's going to usher in the kingdom. So there was a, a false Christ. Now let's go to the 20th century. Let's skip a couple centuries and go to the 20th. Have you ever heard of the Reverend Sun Young Moon? Okay, he believed that he was the Lord of the Second Advent. I wouldn't know all this stuff, but I actually ended up spending three days in a Mooney conference place, a retreat center. I was totally accidental. I was a young Christian and very gullible, and this guy met me at the bus station when I was carrying my banjo with a Jesus sticker on it because I was going down south to do a, a gospel concert. And he says, are you a Christian? And I said, yes, I am. Are you? <laughs> I was so excited to meet any Christians. He said, yes, we're Christians too. And we're having a special Christian retreat. Would you like to come to dinner at our house? And then we can go to this, this conference. It's nearby and you'll enjoy yourself and learn so much. Turns out that I went and this was, uh, it was a cult, the Mooney cult. And I spent three days and I was lucky to get out of that place. Uh, it's a long, long story. If you want to read about it, there's an article on our website, if you just search for it. What did I call that thing? A Day in the Life of the Moonies or something? <laughs> anyway, I, I wrote all about it. Very interesting thing. The Reverend Sun, Sun Young Moon believed that Jesus Christ failed in his mission. That when he came, he did not provide salvation for anybody. That the Reverend Sun Young Moon had to come to complete what Jesus started. So he came to, to bring salvation to the human race. So he is the Messiah. He's the Lord of the second advent who came to fulfill and to complete what Jesus only began. False Christ. And then there have been scores of people who said that they are the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Jim Jones believed that. He taught that. You know who Jim Jones is? Okay. The mass suicide well, I should say mass murder slash suicide because some of those people were jabbed with needles. They didn't, they didn't take the Kool-Aid themselves. Over 900 people died in Guyana, South America. Jim Jones was purporting to be a reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard of the name Charles McHugh? He goes also by the name Lightning Amen. When we lived in Fresno, we had a home where we invited other people to come and, and stay at our home. And there was this one young fellow named Jeff, right, Debbie? Wasn't it Jeff? And he told us about an experience he had of being part of the Lightning Amen group. And I thought, what are you talking about? Lightning Amen? And he would tell us all the details about this group. I never thought too much about it. And I just went online the other day and Googled Lightning Amen. And there's all kinds of information about Charles McHugh. He died a few years ago. But he also believed that he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. All his followers went around with white robes. They gave up all their possessions. 
so they scorned materialism. They scorned uh, sexual contact of any kind. They were celibate, but they loved marijuana. And so that would guide him. <laughs> they they take took drugs. They smoked marijuana, and he actually uh, was arrested for that at, at one point. What about Marshall Applewhite? Does that name ring a bell with anybody? What about the Heaven's Gate cult? This was Doe. There was T and Doe, like Do Re Mi Sa To Sola T Doe. <laughs> T was the female. Bonnie Nettles. They called her. Doe and then or, or T and then he was Doe. Um, he also claimed that he was of the line of Christ, that Jesus was from outer space, that he came down to the earth from a spaceship, that he went back, and that he that these UFOs were going to take all the faithful to this new level of human existence if they would become as unhuman as they possibly could, which meant becoming celibate. So they tried to become as genderless as possible. So all the women had boyish haircuts. Um, they, they dressed uniformly. Um, they, they lived communally. They had no individuality at all. And they all followed Doe, this, this person, uh, Marshall Applewhite, who he said that they needed to exit this world because their deliverance was drawing nigh. And what that deliverance was, was a spaceship trailing behind a comet, Comet Hale-Bopp, and if they would just kill themselves, their souls would exit this world and go to that spaceship, and they would go to this higher level of existence. And you say, come on, you're telling me th this is a joke, right? That You're making this up. This is actually what they taught. You can go online and you can go to their website. Somebody's kept that website going for 17 years after the whole... 39 people kill themselves. There was a couple people who said that we'll stay behind and we'll keep the website going so other people can know about this truth out there. It's no joke. And the people that were part of this group were smart people. They were computer programmers, website designers. Their clients commented on how intelligent they, they seemed to be. Intelligent people believe that. Another false Christ. But there are people living today that are claiming to be the Christ. Did you know that? There's a guy in Australia. Have you heard of this one? His name is um, Alan John Miller. They call him AJ. Anybody heard about AJ Miller? You have. He's an interesting guy. Um, he claims that he has memories of the crucifixion happening to him. In fact, he holds these seminars... And when he goes to the seminar, he has this big whiteboard, and he writes out the words, I am Jesus. Deal with it. That's just how he starts his seminar. I am Jesus. Deal with it. How would you like to be him on Judgment Day when you stood before the real Jesus? Uh-uh. Wouldn't want to. I, I, I watched a couple of documentaries on this, and there was, there was a woman in the San Francisco area that got caught up in his teachings, and she was so enthralled. She was watching six or eight hours of these teachings online every day. She finally left her husband, moved over to Australia. Now he's, she's part of this group. And so it's bearing evil fruit, splitting up families. And that's what, you, what happens in cults all the time. Families are divided, not in a godly way, in an ungodly way, where, where divorce takes place. And, and the cult that I talked to you about, the, the, the Heaven's Gate cult, People would leave their children 
and just run off to this cult because they were trying to leave everything of humanness behind. And they felt that included their family. So they'd leave their kids with family members and just go. Um, craziness. So Alan John Miller. Now, interestingly, he has a, a woman partner. I don't know if they're married or not. Her name is Mary Luck. But now she believes that she's Mary Magdalene. So he is Jesus. She's Mary Magdalene. And purported, <clears throat> purportedly, uh, he, when he was on the earth the first time, was married to Mary Magdalene. And now he's come back in a reincarnated form and Mary Magdalene and Jesus are together again. How convenient. <laughs> so Alan John Miller. Another fellow by the name of Wayne Bent. Have you ever heard of him? He's in America. He's in the United States. Um, New Mexico. At least he was until several years ago. He now is in prison. He's on a 10-year prison sentence because of having sexual contact with minors. There were young girls that were in this compound with him, and he would undress, and he would have them undress, and he'd lie down and cuddle with them. And he was caught for that. He was arrested, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. But this is what he said. He is the embodiment of God. He is divinity and humanity combined. What is he saying? He's Jesus. That's who Jesus is. Divinity and humanity combined. And then there's a fellow by the name of Viserion over in Siberia. Have you heard of this one? Interesting, interesting fellow. He has this uh, large area, this land mass. It's like a retreat center where all of his followers come. And it's in a beautiful place. At least it is in the summer when I watch the video. I bet in the winter all you can see is snow. But in, in the summer, it's mountains and beautiful lakes. And they have these outdoor amphitheaters where there's worship services. And um, people come to worship, except they don't worship Jesus. They worship Viserion. He, he appears rarely. And infrequently, but he'll, he'll descend from the mountain as this worship service is in progress. He'll come down all alone. He'll give this lecture and then he'll exit. And people are, are trying to touch him and trying to fall down before him because they think he's actually Jesus Christ. And he exits back up into the woods and he has very rare and infrequent contact with other people, cloistering himself away from the masses. Now, interestingly, this fellow has fathered six children. He's been married twice, and he used to be a traffic cop. You're really going to tell me this guy's Jesus? I don't think so. Another false Christ. Jesus warned us in advance that things like this are going to happen. He says, when people are saying, I'm the Christ, or that person's the Christ, don't run after them. Don't believe them. You're going to know when the real Christ is here, because he's going to come like the shining of the of the lightning from the east all the way to the west, from one part of the sky to the other. There'll be no confusion over it. You won't have to wonder. So the first thing, first practical implication from Jesus' teaching is that we are not to be deceived by false prophets and false Christs. There's one Christ, one real Christ, and you're not going to miss him when he comes again. You'll know it. Second exhortation. Don't be preoccupied by your earthly life. Don't be preoccupied by your earthly life. Now this comes out in verses 26 through 30 
Because there Jesus tells us that his coming is just going to be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. He says, just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Now, Jesus says, My coming will be like the days of Noah. It will be like the days of Lot. Now, what kind of comparison is he drawing between his second coming and the days of Noah and Lot? Well, he tells us, People were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, buying, selling, planting, and building. You say, well, what's so wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that, is it? There's nothing evil in and of itself intrinsically with any of those things I just mentioned. I mean, you have to eat to survive. You have to drink to survive. God expects us to be industrious with our work, to buy and sell, plant and build. Uh, marrying is perfectly legitimate in the kingdom of God. I mean, it, there's nothing wrong with the things Jesus mentions. So why would he say his second coming is going to be the same or it's going to be compared to just like those days? It's because in both the days of Noah and the day of Lot, God's judgment fell upon a people and they were utterly unprepared for that judgment because they were wholly engrossed in this earthly life that they had not prepared for the life to come. Remember, how many survived in the flood? Noah and his family. So that turned out to be eight people. Noah, Noah's wife, his three sons, their wives. Eight people survived. How many people survived when the fire fell on Sodom and Gomorrah? There was Lot and two daughters. So three people survived. There was a small minority who received mercy in those judgments. I believe that's probably intended, uh, one of the intended parallels here that Jesus says uh, that is going to be um, the same between his coming and the days of Lot and Noah. Remember Jesus said that the gate is small and the way is narrow, that leads to life, and few are those who find it. It's not the majority of the human race, it's the minority of the human race that is saved in the end, saved from judgment. But what, what I think the Lord wants us to take away from this comparison is that we need to be careful that we're not preoccupied by this earthly life to the point where we neglect the heavenly life, the spiritual life. You have to be concerned about this earthly life to live here. God expects us to. In fact, if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So God wants you to work he wants you to work hard. He wants you to be industrious. He wants you to provide for your family. Marrying is a blessing. Buying and selling is natural and normal. But if we become engrossed and absorbed in those kinds of earthly things to where we disregard God and neglect any kind of relationship and pursuit of the living God, the Creator, we're going to end up just like the people in Noah's day and just like the people in Lot's day. We will be judged and destroyed 
when Christ returns. You need to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ in order to be spared when, when Christ returns and judgment falls. So my exhortation for you is make the greatest priority of your life to pursue your relationship with God. Now yes, you will be faithful in all these other earthly areas, but don't neglect the most important area, which is your relationship with Him. And so, I would encourage you to devote yourself to hearing from God by getting into the Word on a daily basis. Devote yourself to a life of prayer and worship and praise, where you walk with God and talk with Him and sing and worship Him and hear from Him. Develop that relationship with Him. And I'm not saying just do that, just you and Jesus alone. Do it in context also of the church. God has called His people to join together in local churches because that strengthens us and our relationship to Him. So do not be preoccupied by this earthly life. Exhortation number three. Don't be captivated by the world. Don't be captivated by the world. This comes out in verses 31 to 33. On that day, the day when Christ returns, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. Now, in those days, they had a flat roof. And people would go up and they would put chairs on top of the roof. And sometimes they'd have a parapet around it so you wouldn't fall off. And they'd put plants up there. And it was kind of a nice place to go to pray or just to visit and talk. Jesus is saying, if you're on the housetop when Jesus is coming like the lightning from the east to the west, don't go down and take things out of your house. And likewise, the one who's out in the field, he shouldn't turn back to his house to get his stuff. And then he says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life is going to lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. Now here, Jesus is trying to get at the hearts of his disciples. When he returns, he's saying, your heart must not be on this world or on your stuff, your possessions, your money. In other words, Jesus is saying, when I come back, you, your heart shouldn't be divided so that you're thinking, oh, my, Christ is coming. I better go down and get my stuff out of my house. I mean, there'll be no use for your stuff anyway, where you're going. <laughs> but... But do you see, he's trying to pinpoint, do not have a divided heart. So part of your heart is with Jesus, but there's this other part that's holding on to the world. If you're out in the field, don't think, oh, i got to go back to get my car. Got to get my banjo. Got to get my money out of the safe. <laughs> don't have a divided heart when it comes to the world and the kingdom of God. In fact, over in Timothy... Paul says that the righteous are those who long for Christ's appearing. They long for it. They're looking for it. They're waiting eagerly for it. They want it. And they are ready to leave this world when Jesus returns. And they don't care about the stuff they've got here because they know anything here can't hold a candle in comparison to what Jesus has for us in heaven. I remember when I was a, a very young Christian, this would be in 1981. I'd been saved about a year, maybe two years. And Debbie and I were engaged. 
And I remember thinking, Lord, I, I, I do want you to come, but could you just wait a little while? Because <laughs> I really would like to get married, know what that's like. And I would really like to have kids and know what that's like. And Lord, if you come now, I'm going to miss all of that. I don't know if you could relate, if you've ever gone through a time like that. But that's really what Jesus is talking about here. My heart was divided. I, I didn't really believe what he tells me that his kingdom is far greater than anything on this earthly kingdom. He says, remember Lot's wife. Do you remember Lot's wife? Remember the angel was dragging her out of the city of Sodom so that she would be spared judgment? And you remember what happened to her? She turned around. Now, why did she turn around and look back? Yes, she loved Sodom. Her heart was in Sodom. Her possessions were in Sodom. Her life was in Sodom. And so she looked back longingly and wistfully and she was turned into a pillar of salt. That's how God feels about worldliness in the heart of Christians. If, if we're longingly looking back to this world, when he has this better world for us, it's not honoring to our God. It's not honoring to Christ. And so he says, see, see, Lot's wife was the epitome of the person who was almost saved. She was so close to being saved, but yet she was overcome by judgment. And there are going to be people that are close to being saved. They've been part of the church their whole life. They've read the Bible. They've been baptized. They've had communion. They've, you know, they've done all the right things. They're almost saved. But the heart is given over to the world. The heart loves the world rather than Christ. They knew the gospel. They knew the way to be saved. But their heart was given over to the things of this world. And they are like Lot's wife. And when judgment comes... If God has not renewed their heart and given them a new heart for Jesus Christ, they will also be lost, just like Lot's wife was judged. What does the Bible have to say about our relationship to the world? Well, it has a lot to say. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, it's from the world. And the world's passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Don't love the world, John says. Or how about James? James has something to say to us as well in James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Don't love the world, and don't be a friend of the world. Because if you're a friend of the world, you're making yourself God's enemy. And I don't think anyone here wants to be God's enemy. Paul has something to say about our relationship to the world in Romans chapter 12. In verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Don't love the world, don't be friends with the world, and don't be conformed to the world. If we value our souls, and if we value our relationship to God, we need to keep a, a light touch on the things of the world. When you find that your heart is grasping after this world and the things in this world, that's a warning. It's a warning to repent. It's a warning that your heart is going after idols, that you need to pull back on the things of this world and have a light grasp of them. That's a, a warning to you to seek God more thoroughly and more diligently than be, ever before because your heart is starting to entwine itself around the things of this world. And you know, the world is alluring. I'm thinking just about, about these things. Smartphones. When I was a kid, nobody had a cell phone. And so when you were out in public, people were opt to talk to each other. You go out in public today, nobody talks to anybody. They've all got earbuds in, and they're all looking down at a screen. All right? Am I right about that? You go to the light rail, you go on a bus, everybody is in their own little world watching their screen. If you go out to a restaurant, just look around you. You have whole families looking down at their phones rather than talking to each other. It's like, I mean, technology can be wonderful if, you're, if you can control it. But if you can't control it, it becomes an evil. And it starts to take over your life. And it makes it so that your relationships with other people begin to fall apart because you're so engrossed in this thing. And now you've got little kids one and two and three years old who are given tablets and phones, and that's their game station. There, there is a, a study. I just heard about this last week. Someone studied what children are doing with their time. And get this, the average amount of hours that a child spends with technological media entertainment is nine hours a day. Now, I couldn't believe that when I first heard it. But that's from a study that was just done. So they are eating, sleeping, going to school, and looking at their phone, tablet, or computer, or video game the rest of the time. When I was a kid, we were outside playing sports every single day. We were playing basketball, football, baseball, climbing trees, building forts. That was our life, active. Kids are at home in front of their computer playing video games or their Xbox or looking at this tablet or this phone. They're not, and that's why we have so many um, obese children and children that have, are getting diabetes. It's because there's, they, they live such an unactive lifestyle. They just sit there and look at a screen. So there are evils that have come in with this great advancement of technology that we must watch out for. And we, we need to guard our children against becoming so dependent upon technology. The world is alluring. I believe America's biggest idol is probably our love of entertainment. In previous generations, previous centuries, people didn't live like we do today. We don't understand that because we, we, we're not part of that generation, but people didn't live like us today. Um, entertainment for people was getting together and visiting with friends, maybe playing some music together, um, maybe playing a game together, taking a walk. Jonathan Edwards, his entertainment was taking a walk in the woods and talking to God. That's what he loved to do if he had spare time. Or, or taking a horseback ride someplace. We live in such a, a crazy, busy, advanced society that we can lose it if we're not careful. The world can suck us in to where it just, we're glued to it. 
There was a time when a boy, when he was being raised, would work with his father at whatever the father did. If the father was a, a, a gardener or a farmer, he would help his dad out in the field. If he was a carpenter, he'd help his dad make chairs and tables or whatever it was. And in this way, those children were bonding with their dad. Their dad was teaching them a valuable trade and he was imparting wisdom day by day as they worked together. That doesn't happen anymore. I mean, because I own my own business, I did have my boys, they were being homeschooled. So I had my boys one day a week come and work with me cleaning windows. And I think that was valuable for them because they, they learned by example how to work. So here's another thing. I own a business and it's hard to find young people who want to work hard today, who are, who are responsible and reliable and faithful because they have this entitlement mentality. They, they look at their phone all day and they think that's what living's all about is you just go to Facebook and then you go play this game and that game and that, that's living. That, that's, this is a mirage. You know, we, we ought to cut down on all of this media entertainment and we ought to do something worthwhile with our life. Something valuable, something that's going to last for eternity. We can, we can blow hours and hours and hours every day, whether it's TV or whether it's on our tablet or whether it's on our computer. But are we investing in lives? Are we learning to work hard and be diligent? Are we learning to be faithful and reliable and responsible? Are we teaching our children those virtues? Or are we handing them a tablet because we don't want to deal with them and so they go off and they do their thing for nine hours a day? So the world is alluring. And Jesus is telling his disciples, don't be captivated by the world. Don't give it your heart. Give Christ your heart. And then the final exhortation is don't be overtaken by the judgment. Verses 34 to 37. I tell you on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And answering they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to him, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. As a young Christian, I heard over and over that these verses are talking about what? The rapture. The rapture. I don't believe that's true. And I'll tell you why. You need to compare Scripture with Scripture when you come to verses like this. And a companion verse to this passage is Matthew 24. Matthew talks about the same thing, and he helps us understand what this is talking about. So go over to Matthew chapter 24. Verse 38. Matthew 24, 38. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they didn't understand until the flood came and took them all away. Remember that verb, took. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the one will be left. Taken where? We'll go back to verse 39. Where were these people taken when the flood came? 
they're taken away to judgment, to death, destruction, and judgment. If you read Matthew 24 in context, the two men, one being taken, has to go back to verse 39 where one was taken to judgment. Verse 41, one woman is taken away, not raptured, she's taken away to judgment. The other is left or spared, shown mercy, just like Noah was left, and the others were taken. They were taken away to death. Noah and his family were left. They were preserved through the judgment and received God's mercy. Okay? So that's why I don't believe this is talking about the rapture. This is talking about the second coming of Christ when Jesus is going to divide all mankind into two groups. He's going to take the majority away to judgment and then others will be left. He, he talks about this when he comes in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. There's going to be two groups. He's going to divide them up, the saved and the lost. And he says in verse 37, the, the disciples asked him, Where, Lord? Where are these people going to be taken? And the Lord says, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Now, where do vultures go? They go to eat dead carcasses, don't they? So what Jesus, I think, is talking about is they're going to be taken away to a place of carnage, of death, of destruction, and judgment. Just like vultures prey upon dead carcasses, <clears throat> these people who are taken are being taken to a place of carnage and destruction and death. Because Christ is going to come and bring judgment upon the unbelieving world. So what's the exhortation that hits us from this passage? Don't be overtaken by the judgment. If there's going to be two groups on Judgment Day, a saved group and a lost group, Make sure now you are in the saved group. Don't wait until Judgment Day, because it's going to be too late then. You will be utterly unprepared when Christ returns. If you're not saved now, you will not be saved then. And so, if there's any doubt in your mind, whether you're a Christian, settle it. Give your life to Jesus Christ. The Bible says, repent of your sin. Believe in the Gospel. That means there must be a turning in your life away from the old life of sin. A, a definite decision of the will that I'm going to turn from that old life of evil and sin and I'm turning now to God and to Christ. And whereas before my trust and my confidence was in myself, I thought I was a pretty good guy, no longer. I'm putting my trust and confidence in Jesus Christ to save me. I realize I'm not good at heart. I realize I have an evil heart, that I'm a sinner, that I need to be cleansed of sin. And so I'm turning from that old life and I'm putting all my trust in Jesus to cleanse me and save me. I believe intrinsic in conversion is the surrender of the will to Christ. If a person remains a rebel to Jesus, I don't believe they were ever converted. So if you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I just like to do my own thing. You're not a Christian. A Christian does the will of the Father, right? Matthew 7, all over again, verses 21 to 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't I do this and this and this? And he'll say, depart from me, you evildoers. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That's right. And he says earlier in that passage, 
that you do not do the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, doing the will of the Father is the... It's the fingerprints. It's, it's, it's the nature. It's the character. It's the desire. It's, it's the pursuit of the child of God. He wants to do what God wants him to do. He wants to please his Father. And so if you want to be saved, you're going to need to surrender your will to Christ and become a servant to him. Ask him, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. It's becoming a follower of Jesus. Just like the original disciples, the only difference is we don't follow geographically Jesus around on this earth. But we do follow him, right? He talks to us through his word, we believe it, and we obey it. That's how we follow Jesus today. Jesus Christ must become your Lord, that is master, your treasure, that is your most valuable possession, if you can call Christ a possession, you're the most valuable one to you, and he must also become your savior, the one who rescues you from the wrath to come. Don't be overtaken by the judgment. Put your trust in Christ. Repent of sin. Surrender to him. Begin following him. Love him. Let's review just a minute. The second coming teaches us not to be deceived by false Christs. So don't go after anybody else. Please. Don't go after a Marshall Applewhite or a Jim Jones or a David Koresh or any of these wackos. They're going to take you to a place of destruction. And that's where it'll take you. They'll exploit you. They'll take your money. They'll take your wife away from you. They're in it for themselves. They're not in it for God. That's why they're cult leaders. Don't go after them. Go after Jesus with all your heart. Secondly, don't be preoccupied by your earthly life. Yes, you have to mind the things of this life, but don't become so absorbed in them that you neglect your relationship to God. Pursue Him with all your heart. Number three, don't be captivated by the world. You have to live in this world, yes, but don't give your heart and your affections to this world and the things in this world. Reserve that for Christ Himself. And fourthly, don't be overtaken by the judgment. Repent while you have time. Trust Jesus and follow him while you still have an opportunity. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would seal the words of Scripture, the words of truth to our hearts. And Lord, insofar that we have fallen into any of those traps that we've discussed, Lord, rescue us and deliver us out. Help us, Lord Jesus, to turn away from the world, a preoccupation with this life, uh, being absorbed by earthly false Christs or being deceived, thinking that we're in the kingdom when we're not. Oh, Father, would you please use this word and, word and help us to be prepared for the coming of our Savior, that we could meet him with joy, and longing in expectancy. And we pray through the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.